are new with us or you feel so inclined, we can use more help. So please, um, be more than a consumer, be a giver. And what I'd ask you to do is just write to the church office and say, hey, if you need me to help set up stuff, we have to pack the, the buses and all. So there's plenty of stuff to do, working with children, just getting everything organized. Glad everybody made it. And now the, the next thing I want to do is lead us in prayer. Thank God last week, the wall, it was either Jericho or Pentecost or Job chapter 1, Satan knocking the walls down. We don't know what was happening, but God is in control, and thank, thankfully everyone's well. And um, I believe Satan does not like what, what is happening. And God's, God's Spirit is moving in our church. Families are growing. People are getting saved, and people are being healed and ministered to. So we know that that's the Lord. We give Him all the glory. Jesus said the flesh profits nothing. The Spirit's the one doing the work. So as a church, the Bible teaches that Christians should pray together. The Bible uses the phrase, with one accord, or in one accord. Now, that's not a car, okay, because somebody like, I didn't think they had accords back then. It's, it's a mindset, and it's difficult because when one person's praying, it's really easy for your mind to wander and be thinking about other things. So, so as we join together, as I lead us in prayer, be, be joining with me in agreement um, when we say amen, that's, that's another way of saying, yes, Lord, let this be. But it's a discipline, but it's also a blessing as a church to pray together. So let's take a few moments just to call upon the Lord, give him all the glory, and seek his, his protection and blessing. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us access into your presence because Jesus died and shed his blood Thank you that you have offered full and free forgiveness and that now as your children we can pray in faith and as a family we can just come to worship and just express our gratitude for your mercy and grace. The Bible says every good thing comes down from the Father and we're so thankful to you. We praise your name, not just for our blessings but also for our trials, for your promises about our future, and for your full and free forgiveness through the gospel. Father, as a church, we want to come and thank you that we live in this country where we're free, free from persecution. We pray for Christians all over the world that are being persecuted, that you will protect them, give them boldness, a willingness to not fear death, and supernatural power to bear witness to the gospel. Lord, we pray for our leaders in this country that they will make decisions that will turn our land towards righteousness. We pray, Father, for the outreach of this church. There are so many people that the gospel is touching. We pray for our missionaries all over the world that you'll strengthen and encourage them and that you will give them fruit in their ministries. And then we pray for the families here, Lord, that many, many people will see their children coming to the Lord, that we will disciple one another in the gospel, and that you will continue to heal marriages strengthen and train leaders, send forth workers into the harvest, bless our children's ministry, Lord, our children's workers, our youth ministry with Jeremy and Emily. We pray for Shizu and Lindsay and the Forge ministry, for Austin and the outreach, for John Beagle and for Janet as they minister to so many different people, Lord, men and women, discipleship, our small groups. May lives be transformed. Father, we just pray now that you will bless your word as we read it together. You said that your word will feed 
and strengthen us. You said you'll build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So continue to help us to grow together, especially keep us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Help us to walk carefully in your word and led by the Holy Spirit. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible today, if you'll turn to John chapter 8. If you don't, our ushers have extra Bibles. If you're visiting with us or just joining us, we're reading through the Gospel of John. By the way, um, if you are behind, you can catch up. The messages are all on our webpage. Unfortunately, I did record chapter 7 last week, but there's been some problems in downloading it, but we will get that on there. So I didn't skip chapter 7. So we're in chapter 8 today, though. And I want to remind you where we are in the book. The Gospel of John starts out by saying, in the beginning was Jesus, the Word, and he was with God, and he was God. But he basically tells us that Jesus, the Word, came down to earth. (coughs) He came into this dark, sinful world for a specific purpose, to die for our sins, to rise from the dead. But the Gospel of John begins by telling us he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. So as we're reading through John, we're seeing that the majority of people reject the claims of Christ, but the minority of people receive Christ and are transformed by Christ and receive forgiveness and eternal life. And they become what the Bible calls the true disciples of Jesus. And so you know that our mission, our our vision for this church is to make disciples who make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? You need to ask yourself, are you a disciple? A disciple is a fully forgiven follower of Christ. So the starting point is you need to know that you've experienced conversion. You need to know that you're born again. It's not It's not unusual for people to be kind of unsure about that. So if you're not sure that you've been converted, if you're not sure that you're saved or forgiven, that's the starting point. And we want to help you with that. We'll sit with you. We'll explain the Bible to you. We'll pray for you. But if you are forgiven, then you're a follower of Christ. And a follower of Christ is to become like him. We're to be transformed on the inside and then to become loving, serving, humble, godly people And then as we begin to follow him and become like him, we start to want to bring others to help them to become disciples. So in John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus is is bearing witness to who he is. He's basically reiterating the same claims. I am from heaven. I am the son of God. I am the only way. If you don't repent and believe in me, you're going to go to hell. If you come to me, I will satisfy you. He says, if you're thirsty, you'll never thirst again. If you're confused. He says, I will guide you. I will remove your fear. I'm the light of the world. I will direct you and take you into heaven. So last chapter in chapter seven, Jesus told them, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There were two events that took place at this feast of tabernacles that we're going to read about. Each day, the priest would carry a, a container of water and they would have a ceremony of pouring out the water and they would celebrate, and then they would light on the last day these three large candlesticks, and then men would dance around into the evening, praising God with torches, so that the city of Jerusalem was lit up. It was a big deal to see all these men in this bright, glowing light as they were rejoicing and pouring out the water. One Jewish man who lived back then wrote, if you've never seen this ceremony of pouring out water and the lights, you've never seen real joy. And so Jesus capitalizes on that 
As they pour out the water, he goes, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me. As he sees them dancing around with lights, he says, I'm the light of the world. He's always drawing people to become his followers. And so let's begin in chapter 8, where we have a rather unusual kind of in-between passage between his speech in chapter 7 and chapter 8, where they bring to him a woman caught in adultery. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now that was right outside the city walls where Jesus would often sleep in the evening in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now you'll remember that back in the Old Testament when God gave the Ten Commandments, the one that said, you shall not commit adultery, the penalty for that was capital punishment. You were to be stoned to death. Now, the irony here is, where was the man, right? You don't just catch one person in adultery. So we see that this was a setup. They set her in the midst, and they said to Jesus, verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now imagine the shame this woman felt, the, dis- the-, the fear the disgrace, the unjustness, like, hey, there was two of us involved. So much pain. Verse 5, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now, before we look at Jesus' response, which some of you are familiar with, I want to remind you that part of Christian community is that we are going to fall into sin. The Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that Christians will fail. Christians at times will mess up. And somebody once said, Christians are notorious soldiers. They're the only soldiers that shoot their own wounded. So one of the things we have to understand is that when someone is overtaken in sin, our goal is to restore them to a relationship with Christ. It's not to judge them. It's not to criticize them. It's not to gossip about them. It's to help them to come to full repentance and to be restored to their relationship with Christ. And that's an obligation we all have for one another. In Galatians chapter 6, it says this. Beloved, even if a Christian is overtaken in any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And the the word restore is the same word that's used of the disciples when they were mending their nets. You're helping that person to to see that what they're doing is wrong, to ask God's forgiveness, and to get right with God, and to to overcome the guilt, and and be back in a relationship with Christ. But, But then it says this in Galatians 6, do it with a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you be tempted. So if you're aware of people in the church that are, that are in sin, you know that they're being deliberately disobedient to God, I want to encourage you to go to them in private, pray for them, seek to to help them get right with the Lord. If, If that doesn't work, Matthew 18 says, bring others with you. But remember, our goal is not to condemn, our goal is to restore them because God cares about the holiness of the church. So these men were not interested in restoring this woman, they were interested in condemning. And I want you to look at the mercy of Jesus here. It says in verse 6, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, 
Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now we're all going, what did he write? What was he writing? And there's so much speculation about this. The answer is, we don't know. And so there's no point in spending 20 minutes trying to figure out what he wrote. What's important is that these men realized, hey, you know what? I need to rethink my own sin. It's so much easier to see the log or the splinter in someone else's eye. Sin is so deceitful that the first thing we ought to always do is when we see others in sin is to examine our own hearts and see where we are in our relationship with Christ and then very humbly and gently seek to restore them. Whatever Jesus wrote, it began to shame these men because it says they began to go out one by one beginning with the older ones and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the midst. Now, just picture this. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. That is a precious, precious verse. But I want you to think this through. Jesus is not advocating sin. Jesus is not encouraging adultery. But it's important to understand that Jesus is all about converting people, not condemning people. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through me. Jesus didn't forgive this woman as a carte blanche that everybody's forgiven, so go do whatever you want. He forgave this woman because she was repentant. He forgave this woman because, the Bible says, when you believe, you're forgiven. But that's a beautiful thing to remember. If you're a Christian, Jesus is not mad at you. The Bible says there's no condemnation. Your condemnation is forever gone. So if Satan's speaking accusations into your life, that is not Jesus. He is not a condemning Savior. He's a comforting, merciful Savior. But I want you to notice that he says to her, from now on, sin no more. Pardon from the past should lead to a commitment to purity in the future. This is what the Bible calls repentance. Anyone who wants to be forgiven by Jesus must be willing to follow Jesus. He's not asking you to change yourself. He's asking you to come into the light and just be honest. I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. I'm not going to get this perfect, but I've made a decision that I want to leave my life of sin to follow Christ. And the reason why most people don't come to Christ is not because they haven't read John 3.16 in the end zone. It's because John 3.18 says, men love darkness rather than light. They don't want to come to the light. So if you are a forgiven follower, then this is a great encouragement from Jesus. Sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Now you're like, how do you do that? If it was that simple, we wouldn't be here. But he's going to go on to talk about that. Verse 12. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, now remember, they had just lit all these lanterns and, and torches. He says, I'm the light of the world. Now what in the world does he mean by that? There's these famous I am statements in, in, in the gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. The Old Testament predicted that God would, would one day be a, a light to the world, that they would no longer need the sun. 
But when you think about it, the purpose of light is to illumine you, shed light. It's to guide and direct you. If you've ever, I was helping a buddy paint the other day and we were in a room with no windows and I got the, the, the spray gun twisted around the electrical cord. So I had this bright idea that I would unhook the electrical cord and then undo the hose. So I unhook the electrical cord and suddenly the entire room is pitch black. And I'm going, okay, this isn't good, right? I'm not just gonna start jamming things together. So with, with the absence of light, we're in big trouble. So Jesus says, if you follow me, you won't walk in the darkness. You see, you, you, you envision someone walking through a forest at night and he's got a light. And you're, you're going, if I don't follow this guy, I'm doomed. And what does it mean to walk in the darkness? To walk in the darkness, first of all, is to be in ignorance. Like most of the world is walking in darkness. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they came from. They don't know their creator. And they don't know where they're going. That's a sad, sad way to live. But they're also walking in darkness because they're living in conscious rebellion against God. The Gospel of John introduces us to what 1 John will say later. John says, God is light and him is no darkness. And if you walk in darkness, you're going to perish. But if you walk in the light, Jesus cleanses you. And so he's giving an invitation. He's going, come to me. I will forgive you and now you'll be in the light. Leave your old life and follow me. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you're bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. What? Back in chapter 5, Jesus said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And they're like, we heard you say that. You contradicted yourself. Jesus says, look, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. And here's why. He says, you people have a fundamental flaw in how you make decisions. You judge according to the flesh. What does that mean to judge according to the flesh? The Bible teaches that people's minds, if they have not become born again, are not capable of appraising things in truth. They're going to get it wrong every time. Because all we have is the capacity to judge by external things. But when we become Christians, the Bible says we have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. So we judge according to the flesh when we form opinions about people based on external things, based on the things that the world values, based on the things whereby we mark people up or down by superficial criteria. Jesus says, here's why you guys are messed up. You're in the darkness and all you judge by is your superficial, ungodly minds. But then Jesus says, I'm not judging anyone technically now, but even if I do judge, my judgment's true, for I'm not alone, but I and he who sent me. So they're going, you can't bear witness alone. He goes, I got two witnesses. The Old Testament said you have to have two witnesses. Jesus goes, I got two witnesses. Go verse 17. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two men is true. I bear witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. He goes, I got, it. I got another witness. It's my Father. Now, again, because they have dark, blind minds, they're thinking, where is your dad? That carpenter you're talking about? Where is he? Go get him right now. And Jesus is like, no. 
I'm not talking about that. Verse 19, they said, where's your father? And it's almost, I, I admire the patience of Jesus. They keep asking him the same thing. Later in this chapter, they're going to say, who are you? Where's your father? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus will go, I already told you. Did I stutter? Do you want me to say it again? So they said, where is your father? And Jesus says, you don't know me, nor my father. Now that's pretty bold. You don't, you don't, if Jesus was from Philly, he'd be like, you talking to me? You don't know me. But he wasn't being mean. He's saying, look, I can tell you how I know you don't know my father. Because if you knew my father, you would love me. He says, if you knew me, you'd know my father. You can't get to God except through Jesus. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 20 says, these words he spoke in the treasury. This was interesting. The, the Jewish temple back then had several courts, the court of the Gentiles and then a, a court of women and then the inner, inner uh, court. But the treasury was in the court of women. It's where they collected all their offerings. That's where the woman through her two little coins. They had 13 big containers shaped like a, a, a Jewish horn called a shofar. So Jesus is teaching out there in this area and, and they decide to kill him, but they can't. No one sees them because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus is going to come back to something. He's going to say, look, I'm leaving here, guys. In a little while, I'm checking out. Now they have no clue what he means by this. Verse 21, I go away and you're going to seek me and you're going to die in your sin. And where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, when you go back and listen to chapter 7, Jesus said this. He goes, I'm going away. And they're going, where is he going? To the Gentiles this time. They go, where is he going? Is he going to kill himself? But Jesus was always very focused. I know where I came from. I know why I'm here. And I know where I'm going. And soon enough, I'm going to go back to my father. And then he says, and you shall seek me. And I'm going, when did that happen? When did all these people who couldn't stand him suddenly go, oh, where's Jesus? I want to find him. I don't think he means here, seek me for me to save you. I think they sought him to discredit him. I think he's talking here about when his body disappeared. Remember, they sought him desperately to disprove his claims. You'll seek me, he says. You're not going to find me. I'm not going to be here. But now look at this sad phrase. He says, you're going to die in your sin. Not sins, plural, singular. In a state of unbelief. You know what people have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Just do your thing, live your life, and you will die in your sin. But if you want to go to heaven, you repent and believe in Christ. And when you do, you're forgiven completely, freely, fully. You're not going to die in your sin. And Jesus said to, to these people, where I go, you cannot come. But he doesn't say that to you. If you're a follower of Christ, he says the exact opposite. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is not what he told the disciples in John 13. He says, I'm going away. He says, you can't come now, but you'll come later. But if you don't know Jesus, you're never going to go to heaven. That's what he said. Therefore the Jews were saying, verse 22, surely he won't kill himself, will he? 
since he says where I'm going, you can't come. Jesus is probably thinking, I'm not going to commit suicide. I'm going to surrender to the cross. And then he just, he just, this is just striking. He goes, look, guys, here's the problem. You're from below. You're a down here sort of fellow. I'm from up there. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. I said to you that you'll die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. If you want to be up there, he says, you better figure out what it means to be down here. Now, what does he mean by this? You're from below and you're of this world. Well, when you read the word world in the Bible, usually it means a fallen moral order. It's, 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 it's the way that things are on this earth. People are hostile and in rebellion against God. So when the Bible says Satan is the God of this world, most of this world is in darkness and opposition to God. They do not want to follow God. They do not love God. They do not believe in God. They do not want to submit to the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus, as he comes into this world, he says, this world is dark. But when you become a Christian, he goes, you're not of this world. I have taken you out of this world, but yet we still live in the world. And we're going to come back to that at the end. So how do I learn to live in this world, but not be of this world? Not to think like the world, not to act like the world, not to leave God out of the world. So Jesus is saying, look, you guys are blind. You're in a fallen condition. You're in rebellion. You don't want to follow me. You refuse to submit to me. You won't believe I am who I said I am. And so here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to die in your sins. And you'll for eternity regret that. Well, this caught their attention. Look at verse 25. They said, who are you? I wonder if Jesus is like, is it me? But look at his patience. He says, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Who am I? I'm the light of the world. I'm the son of God. I've come down from heaven. I got more that I want to tell you. Look at verse 26. I have many things to speak and judge concerning you. I, that's why I'm excited going through the gospel of John. It's like Jesus is like, I got more to tell you. But he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him these I speak to the world. They're like, who are you? He goes, I told you. I've been up with my father and he sent me down here to tell you the truth. And I got a lot of stuff that he told me to tell you. Will you just listen and believe? Verse 27. They didn't realize that he'd been speaking to them about the father. Then Jesus said something really, really interesting. I mean, these guys are like, what? He says in verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. So he's going, I'm the son of God. And they're like, who are you? He goes, I'm the son of God. But you don't know this. And he goes, but I'll tell you when you will know, when you lift up the son of man. Now, what he's talking about here is his crucifixion. And the reason we know that is because he says, when you lift up the son of man. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw him into myself. Now, here's where the puzzling question is. When you lift me up on the cross, he says, then you will know that I am he. Now, have you read that? Did you read in your Bible that suddenly when Jesus is hanging on the cross, millions of Jews all came and said, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. 
So this is a troubling verse in that it doesn't seem to, to jive with the idea that when he was on the cross, they knew he was the Son of God. But I could tell you this. One day, everyone will know that Jesus is who he said he is. Because the Bible says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So ask yourself this question. When you stand before Jesus, will, will you stand there because you've been converted? Or will you stand there because you are being condemned? And that's a decision you need to make before you die. One day the whole world will know that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus said in verse 29, And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. For I do the things that are pleasing to him. Must have been really kind of depressing for Jesus to have all these followers, right? But every time he turned around, they're, they're leaving him, they're blaming him, they're confused, they're unbelieving. He comes to chapter 16, he goes, You're going to all leave me, but I'm not alone. My father is always with me. Now, I want to come back to that as you think about it. I'm not alone. Now at this point you're like, wow, look at verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. I raised my hand. I'll come forward. And, and, and at first when you read this, you're going, look at all these people who got saved. And one of the things I've been trying to point out to you is that in the Gospel of John, just because it says they had believed, this is not an absolute that their faith is real. What John's going to show us is the difference between fickle, false faith, and genuine, true faith. Because on a number of occasions, it'll say, these people believed in him, and the next thing you know, they want to kill him. So this is not intended to scare you. If you say you are a believer, this is not intended for you to go, well, maybe you're a faker. Maybe you're a hypocrite. Maybe you're Judas. It's simply intended to say, if you are a true believer, you ought to see evidence that your faith has made you a follower. Now let me explain what I mean. Jesus said to them, if you abide in my word, look at verse 31, then you're truly disciples of mine. Does that make sense? What are we doing here? We're trying to make disciples who make disciples. What's a disciple? Someone who raised their hand? Hey, I'm a follower. No. It's someone who continues in the Lord's words. How do I know if I'm a disciple? Do you continue to read your Bible? Do you continue to believe the Bible? Are you attempting to obey the Bible? Or are you simply a fair-weather friend who says, I, I raised my hand, so I said the prayer. So Jesus invites us to be true believers. And he teaches us this wonderful truth about perseverance. The mark of a real believer is that you will continue to believe and that you will continue to trust him and that you will continue to get up when you fall and follow him. And Jesus says, as you do that, then you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Free from what? Free from guilt? Free from the fear of death? Free from a hopeless, purposeless life? Free from the fear of what everybody else thinks of me? Free from the bondage and controlling power of sin? 
Folks, you've heard me say this before. I'm in recovery. And some of you are like, I didn't know you had a substance abuse problem. I didn't. I'm in recovery from sin. And if you're a Christian, so are you. We are forgiven followers, but what Christ is doing in our lives is he is freeing us so that we can follow him and become like him. We're not just wretches who just happen to be saved by grace. We are fully forgiven followers who have had our hearts changed and now we have the freedom not to do as we please, but the freedom to do what pleases God. And that's freedom indeed. There's no third option. You're either a slave of sin, you're a fully following disciple who's pleasing God, and there's no in-between where I'm like, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Look what Jesus said. Verse 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Sin is powerful. It's persuasive. It's deluding. It's deceitful. And it's entangling. Peter said, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Sin doesn't lead to freedom, it just leads to more bondage. But one of the glorious truths of the gospel is this, that when you became a Christian, Christ fundamentally broke the power of sin in your life. And God wants you to believe that. This is not JK, mind over matter. Read Romans chapter 6 very carefully. It says we don't need to continue in sin because we have been crucified with him. We have been freed to walk in newness of life. You are not just a forgiven sinner. You are a freed sinner. And the Bible says we are to reckon that to be true, believe that to be true, and no longer yield yourself to sin. It's a glorious liberty that the Holy Spirit gives us. And if you're not experiencing that, Benjamin prayed a beautiful prayer. He said, Lord, for those who are in bondage to sin, Christ did not save you and me to leave us addicts to our sin. He saved us to progressively free us from the power and bondage of sin. That's part of the abundant life. And that comes as I abide in his word, as I become accountable to others, as they speak the gospel in my life, as I confess my sins and pray for forgiveness, as the Holy Spirit works in my life and brings forth the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace. We have a glorious, wonderful liberation from sin. I love the song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. The songwriter said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than wealth and land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. And then he says this, I'd rather do that than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I've been there and done that, and I am so thankful. Like Charles Wesley said, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is why I call it dog Christianity, not cat Christianity. If you cage up a dog and you cage up a cat and you free them after a day, a cat's going to look at you and go, change my litter and get my tuna. A dog's going to be like, I love you, man. What can I do for you? I'll turn myself inside out. Want the stick? Want the stick? They're just so grateful. And that's how Christ saved us. Titus chapter 2 says, He loosed us from our sins and every lawless deed that we might be zealous of good works. 
It's a joyful thing to be free to follow Christ. And so read Romans 6. Paul goes, why would you want to go back to the things of which you're enslaved? Now you're ashamed of those things. Present yourself to God. We're free to follow him, to serve others, to live in love and joyful liberty. Jesus said the Son will make you free indeed. If you're not free and you're a Christian, then you just need gospel healing. You need prayer. You need to see how the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will bring you freedom. This is not to make some light thing that the moment you're a Christian, you don't struggle anymore with sin. But Jesus didn't just come to save us in our sins. He didn't come to save us for our sins. He came to save us from our sins. Not only the penalty, but its power. Pray that God's Holy Spirit will fill us. I'm tired of seeing bumper stickers that go, I ain't sinless, I'm just forgiven, as they drive like the devil on the shoulder of the road. We're not sinless, but Jesus saved us that he might free us so we sin less. And he could take ornery, selfish, lustful, proud, lazy, fearful, timid, anxious people, and he could change you. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so I hope this is encouraging to you. Christ is working in our lives. Verse 37, they says, he says, I know you're Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You know what that word means? It's making no progress in you. This book is alive. And if you become a Christian, it goes inside of you and starts working. It's cleansing and transforming and powerful. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, I thank God when you receive my word, you received it as the word of God, which works in you. If all you do is hear this book, read this book, and it never has any effect on you, you're lost. The word of God makes progress in us. It gives us freedom. It gives us peace. It brings us back to the promises of the gospel. It doesn't matter how many times you've been through the Bible if the Bible never goes through you. That's why we're teaching it and preaching it and praying that it will become a part of our lives. Pray God, let Jesus' words make progress in me. Jesus says, I speak these things which I've seen from my father and therefore you do the things which you heard from your father. And they said, Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, I'm going to do a paternity test. I wrote down, wrote down 95, there was a billboard. Find your father. I'm going, is it me? Is our culture that messed up? That when we tell children about their forefathers, they're going, four? Father? I don't know who my dad is. And I don't make light of that, but it's sad that we live in a culture, there are so many people that don't even know who their father is. Is it this one, this one, and this one? Jesus says, I'll tell you how you can have a spiritual paternity test. If you'll do the deeds of Abraham, then God's your father. Jesus says, but you seek to kill me. This Abraham didn't do. You're doing the deeds of your father. So you want to know if you're Christian? Jesus says, if, if God's your father, you'll do things that Abraham did. Like believe the Lord. Like trust the Lord. Like surrender your son to the Lord. But if the devil's your father, Jesus says you'll do things like this. You'll do sins of wickedness, pride, 
anger and malice. You'll hate what's good. You'll entice others to evil. You'll love darkness. I don't want to be like that, do you? I was like that, apart from the grace of God. Man, now they take a shot at Jesus, verse 41. We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. I think they're implying here is, we know that, we know, Jesus, that you were immoral. We know your mom wasn't a virgin. We're not like you. And Jesus says, guys, if God were your Father, you would love me because I came from God. I haven't come from my own initiative, but God sent me. And now he reminds us of this profound gospel truth. If you're a Christian, it's not because you chose to be a Christian first. It's because God chose you. He opened your eyes. He selected and elected you entirely of his own mercy. And I know for some of you that's hard to hear. You're like, no, I totally did it of myself. But over and over, Jesus says, no, you know me because I chose you. And he's going to say it again. He says, you don't understand what I'm saying, verse 43, because you can't hear my word. Verse 47 is, if you're of God, you hear the words of God. You don't hear them because you're not of God. Folks, the reason why God saves us by his sovereign election is to strip away all our pride. I can't take any credit that I'm a Christian. I was dead in my sins. I was blind. I was captive by Satan. But God, when he was rich in mercy, made me alive together in Christ. That's the only reason he saved us by his sovereign grace, so that he alone would get all the glory. It's by his doing you're in Christ. You and I are not smarter than the average bear. It's a miracle of the grace of God that he's shown the light of the gospel into our heart. I know that's hard to understand. What about lost people? Lost people are lost people not because they're not chosen. They're lost people because they will not come to Christ. They're sinful, they're rebellious, and they refuse to believe. No one's going to go to hell because they weren't chosen. They're going to go to hell because of their sin. But those of us who are saved, Jesus says, you're saved because I chose you. That's not supposed to confuse you. That's supposed to comfort you and cause you to go, God, not only did Jesus die for me, but you brought me to yourself. What a wonderful Savior. So Jesus says, you have your father, the devil, verse 44. You do the desires of your father. He was a murderer. He doesn't stand in the truth. Now look at this verse. He's a liar and the father of lies. I want to keep reading here because we're almost done. Verse 48, the Jews said, you're a Samaritan, have a demon. And Jesus said, I don't have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. I don't seek my glory. If you keep my word, believe in me, you're not going to die. You're going to live forever. Not physical, but eternal. Now we know you have a demon. You're not greater than Abraham. Verse 53, who, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus says, look, if I'm just tooting my own horn, it's nothing. But I know God, verse 55. If I said I don't know him, I'll be a liar like you. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now what did he mean by that? One of two things. Either Abraham, because he's in paradise, right? When Jesus came down from the Virgin Mary, he's like, finally, Messiah is here. And Jesus is going, I know Abraham. He's in paradise and he's rejoicing that I finally came as I promised. Or... He's thinking back to when Abraham was on earth. And when Abraham was on earth, God made some promises to him. From your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham had a messianic hope. He didn't know his name was Jesus. He didn't know he would die on the cross. But Abraham, when he offered up Isaac, he said, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. 
So Abraham was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they say, how can you know Abraham? You're not even 50. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. I am? That's Yahweh. I, I, I am. He just claimed to be God. And as usual, they tried to stone him. So what are we going to do with this? I want to give you a couple things for us to take home. Number one, if you're a Christian, remember this. You're not of this world. This world is no longer our home. And we have to remember that those people prancing around in the mall and doing Christmas the world's way, they're not doing things God's way. Being of the world doesn't mean you're just shooting crack in a, in a back alley. Being of the world is when you leave God out of your life. When you're more excited about a guy in a suit jingling bells than you are about a savior. The Bible says don't be conformed to this world. Don't think like this world. Just because the crowd's doing it. There's Sunday morning football worship. Doesn't mean that we can't enjoy life. But we have to remember this. Jesus has chosen us out of this world but then he's put us back in this world to be witnesses. So pray that God will help you to be skillful. Jesus prayed for us in John 17. Father, I don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Remember that. This world is not our home. Don't drive your tent peg so deep. Your happiness will not be found in your marriage, in your mansion, in your motor home, in some great career or vacation. We're just here to live for Christ and to win people to Christ, and to build up the body of Christ, and to raise our kids for Christ. That's what matters. Our home is in the future. Secondly, remember this. Jesus says, I'm not alone. And I can tell you this. You're not alone. You might be so lonely this holiday. You might feel so sad, discouraged. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Go and make disciples, and I am with you always. You are never alone. You can be in a crowd of people and feel alone, but if you're a Christian, you're never alone. Satan makes us feel like we're alone. Satan makes us feel like God's not answering our prayers, but he wants you to believe you and I are not alone. Two other things real quick. Jesus said, I came to set you free. God's greatest goal is not your happiness. It's your holiness. Because holiness leads to happiness. It's trying to live a life of surrender to Christ and being filled with the Spirit. So give attention to that. Pray that God will help you to grow. Be reading Romans 6. If you need to get counseling, I've gotten Christian counseling. It doesn't make you some sort of a misfit. If you need somebody to sit with you and help you to work through the Word to apply it to your life, don't live a miserable life of guilt and shame and bondage and slavery to sin. Christ has something better for you. And lastly, did you hear what Jesus said about Satan? He's a liar. All day long he lies. And I can assure you that he's probably, he and his demons have told you plenty of lies this week. If you're not a Christian, his biggest lie is that you don't need to be a Christian. His biggest lie is that you could put it off and get saved some other time. Or that guy up there who talks too much, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's the biggest lie. But if you're a Christian, he doesn't stop lying after you become a Christian. He's an accuser. He will tell you things about yourself that aren't true. You're a failure. 
If people knew what you were really like, he will tell you that you're a piece of trash, that God can't use you, that your past has ruined you, that he doesn't have somebody out there for you, that you don't belong here. He's a master of lying. And so the Bible says, take the shield of faith and resist his fiery missiles. Claim God's promises. I can't stop doing this. Oh, yes, I can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'll never get over my sadness. Weeping shall last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. The Lord has left me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are forgiven. You have the Spirit of God. God is with you. He wants to use you. Pray that God will help you to sort out and resist the lies of Satan that keep us in bondage. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is good for us. And we thank you for Jesus and the precious words of the gospel. We celebrate our forgiveness. We celebrate that we're free. We celebrate that there's no condemnation. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we will go into this world and we will shine as lights in love. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you have spoken to us. May your word continue its work in us. And may we go out and make disciples, live as disciples, and bring others into a fellowship relationship with you. We praise you and I ask that you will dismiss us with your joy and peace. May every parent, every child, every single person be encouraged today because we heard your words and we worshiped you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. We'll look forward to seeing you next week in John chapter 9. Bring a friend. We've got plenty of room now.